We live uh, in an age with just tons of information all the time, nonstop. I was doing some research on this this, uh, this week, and this is old. This is from 2013, but it says, Big data, for better or worse, 90% of the world's data was generated over the last two years. And that was in 2013. Think about that, that 90% of the world's information is, is just just barely coming into being. And if you want something recent to look at, this is the volume of data information created, captured, copied, consumed worldwide from 2010 to 2025. So this is where it began and this is where it will be. We're here right now. So you can just see it's only a little bit of time all of this information. I remember as a kid, we had a collection of the encyclopedias. Many of you don't even know what that is. It's kind of like Wikipedia, but in a book. And we used to have a collection of those and thought, wow, that's a lot of information. And that's nothing. It doesn't even make the graph. This is measured in zettabytes, which I don't even know what that is. But that is a lot of bytes and a lot of information. And another uh, study says how much data is created every day. This just kind of shows you where this data is coming from, where this data is being used. And if you look at Google, Google handles a staggering 1.2 trillion searches every year. 1.2 trillion. That's, that's a lot. 1.2 trillion searches every year. There's 71.5 billion apps downloaded in the first half of 2020. That's just staggering to think about how much information, how much technology, how many applications. The almost 5 billion videos on YouTube are watched every day. Probably half of those are by toddlers whose parents are trying to distract them. In 2020, roughly 306.4 billion emails were sent and received each day. Only 10 of those were read, which is crazy. But there was a lot of them that were, that were sent. Um, and Netflix released approximately 2,769 hours of original content in 2019. And yet we still scroll trying to find something to watch. And then finally, there's 18.7 billion text messages sent every day worldwide. That's why your mom wonders why you won't text her back, because she knows that all of those billions are being sent all over the world. There is a lot of information, right? We live in just a constant barrage of information, but we want wisdom. We want to actually live with wisdom, not just information. There's a big difference. I love this uh, quote by T.S. Eliot, author, poet. He says, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge that we have lost in information? Just because there's tons of information, just because you can know more than we've ever known, doesn't mean that we actually have wisdom. And you and I want to live with wisdom. It's hard oftentimes when there is so much information to actually live with wisdom. It's hard to decide different things. We have different decisions probably right now that we're trying to make. Different ways that we're trying to figure out how to live. 
You might be trying to wrestle with job and career choices and, or within your job, have wisdom to figure certain things out. It might be with relationships that we desire wisdom and to know, how do I do this? How do I raise my kids? How do I love my spouse? How do I have healthy relationships? It might be just kind of moral, ethical choices that you're trying to figure out. What do I do in this situation? How do I solve this problem? What's the right thing to do? Where is it for you right now that you would love to have wisdom? Where do you need? Where do you want? Where do you search for wisdom right now in your life? If we have wisdom, we can sift through all sorts of data that is presented to us. If we have wisdom, we can live life in a way that is good and healthy. We can, we can make it through all sorts of things because wisdom provides a path for us. We know what's right and we have the skill to actually be able to apply it and live it out with God and with people. But it's hard. It's hard to have wisdom. Partially because we're distracted by so much other information that is around us that it's hard to actually have clarity and wisdom. It's hard to have wisdom because there's so many different voices speaking into our lives. Think about you've got, you've got friends, you've got family, you've got parents, you've got experts, you've got blogs, you've got your therapist, you've got a life coach, you've got employers and co-workers, and you've got just so many things around us that it's hard. There's so many competing voices and different voices, oftentimes conflicting. A lot of times it's hard to have wisdom because we are just busy. There's not time to reflect. There's not time to actually pause and think and actually figure out what is wise right now. We are just going, 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 going. Go to work, come back, take care of kids, Watch one of the billions of shows on Netflix, send a billion text messages, and then go to sleep and repeat. It's hard to actually reflect and say, what is wise? What's the wise thing to do? What does it mean to live with wisdom in whatever situation that we're trying to figure out? So how do we get wisdom? That's really the question that I want us to explore today as we are in our series in the Gospel of Luke talking about life with Jesus. How do we get wisdom? Maybe for some of us, we're not really thinking about that at all, again, because we're just distracted or going through life or busy or it's just not really on our mind. We're just living. Maybe for some of you, you come in here today because you want wisdom. It is front and center on your mind. There are decisions you're trying to make. There's maybe even suffering in your life and you don't know what to do. You're confused. It's difficult. And you want a path of wisdom to be able to make it through. You don't want to mess up. You don't want to do it wrong or do it wrong again. You want wisdom. And maybe for some of us, life is going well and we feel like we have made wise choices in our life, but we want more wisdom. We want to continue to grow. We want to continue to stay on the path of wisdom. How do we get it? That's what we are going to look at today. And the context of this section that we are looking at is there are two different groups of people that are trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to mess him up. They're trying to find a way to kind of trap him, poke holes in his wisdom. But what happens is Jesus shows that he is the wise one. 
And though they come to him to try to mess him up, to try to trap him, they end up awed, speechless by his wisdom. And if, and if you and I want wisdom, whatever situations are going on in our life, whatever decisions we're trying to figure out, if you and I want wisdom, Jesus really shows us the way here. And so we're going to read this and explore together how we get wisdom by, by looking at what it is that keeps us from wisdom, what the source of wisdom is, and then what the path is for us or how we actually get it. Let's, let's read this together. Luke 20, verses 20 through 40. It says, They watched closely and sent spies who pretended to be righteous so that they could catch him in what he said to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. They questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But detecting their craftiness, he said to them, show me a denarius, that's a coin, whose image and inscription does it have? Caesar's, they said. Well then, he told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. They were not able to catch him in what he said in public, and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Now a second group tries. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came up and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. Also the second and a third took her. In the same way, all seven died and left no children. Kind of a brain teaser they're giving him. Finally, the woman died too. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven had married her. Jesus told them, The children of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they can no longer die because they are like angels and are children of God, since they are children of the resurrection. Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living to him. Some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. And they no longer dared to ask him anything. Now, as we explore this, let me just give some comments on kind of what was going on here. And then we will uh, move into exploring wisdom. Jesus is in this situation where two different groups are trying to trap him. And the first group asks him about taxes, and they come flattering him, right? They come saying, you are such a good teacher, and you show no partiality, and you are so awesome. And then they give him kind of this trick question to mess him up about taxes, which for them was a key issue. It was a key issue because you've got the Jewish people that are ruled by and oppressed by the Roman government, and they didn't know, should we pay taxes? Should we pay taxes to an oppressive regime? Should we do that 
or not? Should we pay taxes to a government that really promotes idolatry? And even on the coin itself, I'll show you the coin. This is one of the actual coins. I know it's a little blurry, uh, but it's thousands of years old, so there you go. Uh, and it, it, this is the picture of the governor, and then on the other side was his mother. And so if you ever get a coin made after you in honor of your mom, make sure she's on one side. But of her, it says, High Priestess. High priestess, and of him it says his name, and then essentially says son of God. So to have this for them is one, a matter of not wanting to pay taxes. Things don't really change that much. Two is that it is paying taxes to support a government that is blasphemous and that is oppressive. So they come to him saying, should we do this? Now, when Jesus says, show me a coin, First of all, that is him showing that they are actually carrying these coins to begin with, which automatically begins to diffuse the situation a little bit because they are carrying these coins themselves, which when they ask him the question, should we pay taxes or not? If Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes, then maybe the people will say Jesus is supporting blasphemy. Jesus is a part of the machine. Jesus is a part of the oppressive government. Jesus supports that. We thought he was on our side. We thought he was the Messiah coming to bring God's kingdom and deliver us. But if he just says yes, they've trapped him. And if he says no, then the religious leaders and the people attempting to trap him are able to tell the government he is saying that, they, that, you, that uh, all the people shouldn't pay taxes. So you should arrest him, government, because he is supporting rebellion. So either way, they're trying to put Jesus in this bind. Automatically, when Jesus says, let me, see, let me see one of the coins. Let me see a denarius. He's showing that they have this money themselves. So they're actually already paying taxes. They're already a part of it. And it just automatically diffuses it. And Jesus gives a famous line where he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Now, you could, we could do a whole sermon kind of just exploring that statement and what that means about uh, the Christian's relation to politics and all sorts of stuff around that. But I want to just keep us focused on really the the bigger picture, which is that people are here trying to mess with Jesus, trying to trap Jesus, but Jesus comes out of it showing that he knows and is the one with wisdom. Now, second situation is this. Another group comes to him, the Sadducees. And they are a religious group. They come to him. They do not believe in the resurrection. So they do not believe that after death there is a life that God recreates and produces. They don't believe in that. And so they ask him this question about the resurrection, but not because they actually believe it, but because, again, they're trying to trap him. They think they've got this good scenario where he won't be able to get out of it. And they reference something in the Old Testament that is called the Levirate Law, which is about if there's a couple and the husband dies and the wife is left a widow and she's left without children, then it was the responsibility of the brother to marry her and to give her children in uh, her, his brother's name. And that was part of their society. Obviously, marriage and children was a very important part and to take care of widows and, and be able to... Um, it's very different. You, know, you, you wouldn't probably do this today, I, I would hope, but it's, it was a way, an actually gracious provision for this widow. And so they present a situation where 
that husband dies, and then the brother dies, and then the next brother dies, all the way up to seven brothers dying, and says, okay, so in the resurrection, who's going to actually be the husband? Which one is it? And they're trying to, again, trap him. Jesus says they don't really understand the resurrection at all. They don't really understand that it's a completely different age and there isn't a giving in marriage, that there's something different that takes place in the resurrection. In both of these ways, here's what happens. Jesus responds where they are silenced. They're in awe by his wisdom. They come trying to trap him, and instead he answers in such a way that they leave going, okay, this guy's wise. There's something about wisdom that he contains, that we don't have. So I want to explore this together. In fact, earlier in Luke, it says about Jesus that Jesus says about himself, actually, that he has more wisdom than Solomon. And Solomon is known as the wisest person in the Bible outside of Jesus. Jesus says there's more wisdom in Solomon that is now before you. So we can learn wisdom as we see what actually happens here. So let's ask this question. What keeps us from wisdom. These teachers that come to Jesus, they come kind of under the pretense of seeking wisdom, but leave with no wisdom. Why? What keeps us? What kept them from wisdom? They come with respect. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly. You don't show partiality. They come with this respect, right? They come before Jesus showing honor, showing some respect, seemingly humble. They look righteous, but in reality, what we are told is that they are pretending to be righteous so they can catch him in what he said. They come with these false motives. The same thing with the Sadducees. It says that they say there's no resurrection, but then they come up and question him about how the resurrection works. In both instances, what you see is people coming to Jesus supposedly to get wisdom But the true motivation is they actually want to dismiss him. They actually want to stay where they are. See, they come to Jesus saying, we want wisdom. Take us to where your wisdom will lead us. But really, that's not what they want. Their motive is actually to stay where they are and show that they don't need to move. They want to be able to dismiss him. Now, that might seem kind of far from our life. You might think, I've never tried to trap Jesus with a question. I've never kind of presented a brain teaser to God. That that might seem just really far from our normal experience and what keeps us from wisdom. And yet, if you think, there have probably been times in your life where you've been challenged by something. Something from God's word, something from a Christian friend, something on a Sunday that you've been challenged by that you didn't necessarily like, that you didn't necessarily want, that you didn't necessarily want change in. And maybe you went on Google and Googled the negative of it. So something like, I don't really need to forgive people and put that into Google. Or I don't really need to love people. Or I don't really need to go to church. Or I don't really need to, and actually are looking for the negative to prove your current state. Or maybe, you, maybe it's not like that. Maybe you uh, don't, don't use Google for your ethical questions, although a lot of people do. Uh, maybe you went to get advice from people that you knew would tell you what you wanted to hear. 
So you're seeking wisdom. You're challenged by something from God's word and you, instead of sincerely saying, I'm gonna come to God, you just seek out people's voices that you know are going to say, yeah, you're fine. What you're doing is okay. So you seek out those friends or maybe your mom or a friend that you know will just say what you want to hear and support you no matter what. I've had many times where I've had conversations with people who, who do that very thing. Or maybe you, again, Google or find a book or some random person, some random author, some random blog that supports the point of view that you don't want to change. And it would never be someone normal. You've never even heard of this person before. You've never even looked at anything that they've ever talked about or anything they've ever written or anything that they've ever recommended, but you find this person and they agree with your point of view and you say, there we go. I'm able to stay where I am. But the people that maybe normally you would look to and the books you would normally look to or the authors or thinkers, you intentionally don't go there. Maybe you even search the Bible, but it's not actually genuinely to listen, but to try to find loopholes, to try to find, is there something in here that supports my current position? The term for this in just psychology is called confirmation bias. It's the tendency to search for, interpret, recall information in a way that supports what we already believe. It's where we seek out, this is exactly what they were doing with Jesus. They're not actually coming to Jesus, trying to learn, trying to get wisdom. They want to stay where they are. They're looking for information, searching for information, remembering facts and information to actually stay and confirm the current position. So I know that you've probably never challenged God necessarily with a brain teaser, but there's many different times where there's things that are presented to us that God wants to speak to us, that God wants to teach to us, that God wants to shape us in when it comes to all sorts of, any, all sorts of things. It might be as it relates to sexuality. It might be as it relates to finances. It might be as it relates to our job or forgiving people or loving people or how we use our time or our families or commitment or all sorts of things. And we just stay where we are with confirmation bias, even under the pretense at times of seeking wisdom. This is what keeps us from wisdom. This is what keeps us actually located where we are. And sometimes we do this in a a little bit of a different way where we can dismiss the wisdom that God has by just kind of asking, similar to the Sadducees, these what-if kinds of questions. So we just say, well, God, why would I pray if you already are going to know what you're going to do anyway? And the effect of that is to keep us from praying. Or we might say, why would I kind of do this or that with my kids or take the energy or time to disciple them and train them when I'm not really in control of people's hearts anyway and I don't know where this is going to go anyway and that's not really my thing, that's God's thing, it's all in God's hands. And we kind of present almost these almost these brain teaser kinds of things to God, these what-if questions like, what if there's a second husband, third husband, fourth husband, that really just keeps us where we are. And it's easy to say, why would I tell people about Jesus if God is going to choose who's in his family anyway, or kind of present these dilemmas that keep us where we are. And it's under the guise of 
looking for wisdom, but it actually keeps us from wisdom. So listen, you and I want wisdom. We want wisdom in our life. We want to grow. We want where, it's not just that we want to be smarter and big giant heads, but we want the life that wisdom creates. We want to be able to navigate through life. We want to know how to handle people well and be able to live life that God has created well. We want that. We want to know how to do it. People pay big money for wise experts in finances or mental health. or all. We pay money to people that help us live wisely. We want wisdom. And yet, one of the key things that will keep us from wisdom is there's many times that we don't really want to listen to him. We don't really, genuinely want to know what he has to say. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they, they didn't really want to know what he had to say. They were trying to keep themselves where they were, and by asking the questions, be able to dismiss him. Do you see this at all at work in your life? Where you desire wisdom? Have you seen that pattern show up at any point in your life where you want wisdom, and yet when we are challenged, we don't really want to know where God wants to lead us. We really want to stay where we are. And see, that's the effect. The effect is we can present these things to God and end up not moving, not changing, staying in the exact same spot, just more self-righteous because we believe that we've kind of proved it wrong, what he says or what others say he says. That's not what God wants for us. God wants to lead us into wisdom. He wants to lead us into a life that is directed by his voice and his heart. This is what keeps us from wisdom. So what is the source of wisdom? If we don't want to just stay where we are, what's the, what's the source of wisdom? What is the source? What can cut through all the noise all the information, all the distraction, all the competing voices, all the contradictions, all the confirmation bias. What can cut through that? What is the source of wisdom? And in some sense, it's really simple. It's just, what does God say? Instead of what is my opinion, instead of what is my instinct, instead of what does my heart say, instead of what does the majority say, instead of what does this friend say, instead of what does this blog say, in some ways it's easy. It's just to say, what does God say? And that leads us into the source of wisdom, to listen to his voice, to open up his word and let him speak to us, to open up the Bible and say, God, what do you say? So in some sense, it's simple. But it's not just the source of wisdom being, what does God say? It's not just as simple as finding a Bible verse to support a certain point that we are looking for. The source of wisdom is deeper than that. In the book of Proverbs, it tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now that fear of the Lord doesn't mean to be terrified of God gives you wisdom, but it is this reverence, this respect, this worship, this awe of God. That is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge, not just facts, but knowledge as in relationship. 
You see, what it tells us the source of wisdom is, is to know God, to worship Him, to enjoy Him, to get to know Him, to actually know God and worship Him in our life is the source of wisdom. So in some sense, it is what does God say, but it's more than that because it's wrapped up in a context of I am worshiping Him and I have a habit of I'm living in relationship with him. I know who he is. What you see with Jesus as he interacts with them is that when they present Jesus with these questions, they're really just asking questions and they're not really having God be a part of it. They're just saying, do we pay taxes or not pay taxes? Whose wife is the brother going to, whose, whose uh, wife Will uh, this woman be in the resurrection? But they're not really doing what Proverbs says here. And yet what Jesus does is exactly what Proverbs says. He brings the worship of God into both of these situations. Look back at the first thing when he says, Give to Caesar things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This is exactly what Proverbs is talking about. Because what Jesus is saying is, Okay, you want wisdom in this situation? Let Let me broaden your perspective. To say, give to the things that are Caesar's, that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. What's God's? Everything. Everything belongs to God. See, even that, Jesus is showing and using a wisdom that says, if you want to think about this question rightly, you have to worship God. You have to know God. God is the ruler of all. God is the creator of all. Everything belongs to him. And you are worried right now about your taxes and your money and if you should do this or not do this. And Jesus is saying, let me remind you that everything belongs to God. And that all the ways that we live with our money, with our understanding of politics, should all fall under the umbrella of, first, I need to understand everything belongs to God. Everything is his. So the way I use my money must be done in a way that belongs to God. And even if I give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, it's only under the umbrella of, yes, but first and foremost, this belongs to God. God is the one that sets up rulers and authorities. God is the one who's in ultimate control. God is the one whose allegiance matters more than my nation. To have that perspective changes how we think about even these questions. And that's what Jesus inserts into it is to say you have to have a perspective of a worship of God if you actually want to have wisdom here. And then the same thing with the question about the resurrection. Look what he says. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. They come to him asking questions about marriage. They come to him asking questions about whose wife it's going to be. And Jesus says, listen, you're not really even thinking about this correctly. You don't really understand who God is. Because first of all, you don't really believe in the resurrection. And yet, in the scriptures, it calls God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when it said that, all three of those people had already died on this earth. And he says, but he's the God of the living. He's the God of the living, which means there is a resurrection. But even to bring it into this context when he talks about the children of the resurrection and how this age is different and the God of the dead, excuse me, the God of the living, not of the dead, what he is saying is this. You're wrapped up in thinking only about this world and how things work here and then applying that 
to another age. But to say that there won't even be marriage in the next age, what does that mean? Is that sad? Is that a wedding on Friday? It was great. There's a couple in the church. Some of you were there. A lot of dancing, celebrating. It was fun. And to say, Jesus is saying, eh, that's not going to be around. Wow, Jesus, that's kind of mean. My next wedding sermon, I'm just going to say, yeah, this is going to be a really short wedding. This is short marriage. This isn't going to last. What do you mean it's not going to last? Well, it's not going to last forever. I mean, who knows whose wife she'll be in the resurrection. <laughs> but Jesus is saying this. If, if, there's no, if there's no marriage in the resurrection, what does that mean? God's not going to all of a sudden try to take from us. He's not going to all of a sudden try to have there be less joy and less love. It means there must be something even better. It must mean that there's going to be a greater love that we experience. It must mean that there's going to be a greater fellowship and community and celebration that we experience then than we even experience in the most beautiful of human relationships. It must mean there's going to be something even better that marriage is right now ultimately just pointing to that we will have then. When Jesus says he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, he's trying to bring the worship of God, the reverence of God, the intimate knowledge of God into these questions. To say, you don't even know who God is. He's so much better than what you even think he is. He is the God of the living and he's the God of life. And so your little disputes or questions about who's what, you don't even comprehend who God is. He's so much better. You see, this is what Proverbs is talking about when it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus brings this into the conversation. See, where do you want wisdom? Where is it that you want to grow in wisdom? Where is it that you're trying to make decisions and you desire wisdom? Where do you want wisdom? What Jesus says, what Jesus shows, what Proverbs says, is let me teach you first to know me. Let me teach you to worship me. Let me teach you to enjoy me. Let me teach you who I am. Not just principles to live by. Those are helpful. But not just what do I say about this thing and this thing. But let me show you who I am. And when that becomes instinctual to us, when we actually begin to know who God is and, and are in awe of him, then we begin to think about every situation the way Jesus shows us. We begin to think about whatever it is, whether it's politics or theological questions or relationships or parenting or what, money or whatever it might be. We begin to think about differently when we say, yeah, but who is God? See, God wants us to know him. God wants to give us wisdom. But the source of wisdom is not just a list of things to do and not do. The source of wisdom is God saying, I want to bring you into me. I want you to know me. I want you to see who I am. To change us at the deepest level. And then everything to flow from there as we see life connected to him. So finally... How is it that we get wisdom? That's the source of wisdom. The source is to be brought near to him and actually know him and enjoy him and worship him and think about all of life connected to him. But how do we get it then? And there's really two things that we can see from here. The first is simply to ask. Now, that is what they did. They came to him and said, teacher, I already showed you this, but we know that you speak and teach correctly. 
You don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Now, the irony is that's actually how we get wisdom, is to, is to come to God like that, to ask. They come asking for wisdom, but their motives are twisted. But if we come with this, this is actually the way to get wisdom. It's to actually ask God in a posture that is like this. It's what James tells us later in the Bible is that if any of you lacks wisdom, come to God and ask him and he gives generously. God loves to give wisdom. The book of Proverbs, we looked at that uh, last year in the summer, but the book of Proverbs has all of these statements where it says things like that wisdom is calling out. It, It personifies wisdom as lady wisdom and says that she is standing there saying, come, come get my wisdom. Come eat and drink wisdom. God wants to give us wisdom. He desires to give us wisdom. And the way that we get it is to ask, to actually come and do what they did, but not pretending. Do what they did, but not trying to trap him, not trying to catch him, but actually to learn, to listen, to ask for wisdom, to say, I know that God is good, what they said, but with genuineness. I know that God is good. I know that he wants good for my life. So even if I'm, listen, even if I'm scared of the answer, even if there's things I don't want to change, I don't want to be challenged in, I know that God is good. And I know that he is perfectly wise. You, listen, you and I are a grasshopper compared to God. Our brains are nothing compared to his. However smart you are, however many degrees you have, however many things you've studied, however many online certifications, however many books, encyclopedias, however much trivia, we're grasshoppers. We're nothing. God is all wise. And so to come to him and say, I know you're good. I know you want good for me. I know you want to give me wisdom, which means not just he wants to fill our mind up with facts, but I know you want to lead me, to bless me, to love me. I know that's who you are. That's kind of what they said, but under pretense. But it's to come to him and say those things and thus to ask. A genuine desire to listen. Where are you wanting wisdom right now? What are you trying to decide Let me ask you this. What are you just trying to figure out by yourself and you're not even asking God? You're actually cutting yourself off from his wisdom before you even have a chance. You're dismissing him before you even start. Where where are you just figuring it out by yourself without even coming to him? Is your heart, God, I want your wisdom. Or is your heart, I can kind of figure it out by myself. Is your heart, God, I want your wisdom. Or is your heart, ah, I I think, I don't know if I really want to know the answer. I kind of want to stay where I am and I'll just confirm with other voices that I'm going the right way. What decisions are you trying to make? Where are you stuck? Where are you confused? What have you not brought to God? All of those questions can begin to help us. But the first way that we actually get wisdom is simply to ask, to come to him with a heart eager to listen, 
knowing that he wants to give it to us and that he is good and wise. And listen, part of what that means is then we pray and say, God, forgive me that I've gone my own way and figured things out by myself. Part of what it means is that we, we actually open up the Bible and say, God, show me who you are so I can know you as both a habit, an ongoing reality, and in a particular situation. God, show me who you are. And God, what do you say? I really genuinely want to know about this thing, whatever it is. That's part of how we ask. You can't ask like they did and just walk up to Jesus and say, Jesus, I have a question. We can't do that. So the way we do it is to cultivate relationship with him through his word, through prayer. It's to actually open the Bible and say, okay, I want to know what you say about this thing. It's also to use the leaders and respected authorities that God has given to us. There are people that God has given to study the Bible. Bible teachers and theologians and people that are trusted and respected that we can actually say, what does God say about this? Instead of just finding a random source that confirms our opinion. That's part of why God gives pastors to the church and leaders to the church is people to help us understand his word so that when we want to know what he says, we have some guides to help us. That's part of what it looks like to ask God, what do you say? Friends in your life, trusted Christians that you know are committed to God's word, not just to telling you what you want to hear. Trusted friends that can actually help bring God's word into your life. Listen, one of the habits and practices that we all need is when we're seeking wisdom or when there's big things going on in our life or even small things that we're trying to decide through is not to just inform people of our decision but to invite them to help us. See, sometimes people think you're checking the box of, of having community be a part of your resources or even having be a, uh, a pastor be a part of your decision-making by just informing and saying, so I want to let you know, here's what I'm doing. Instead of actually what the Bible would call us to is to invite people to speak into that so we can see what we might be missing, blind spots that we might have, Areas that we're not thinking about. What God's word says and helping us to live and follow and understand. We need to not just inform, but invite into the process. The source of wisdom is ultimately knowing God and listening to him and being in relationship with him. Which means that part of the way that we get that wisdom is with a genuine heart coming to him and asking. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is to actually trust him. These are related, but to actually trust him. See, when they bring these questions to Jesus and when they bring these challenges to Jesus, what they're doing is they're trying to show that they, not him, that they have the authority to continue to lead Israel as the religious leaders, as the political leaders, that they have the authority, not Jesus. They're trying to keep themselves, as we often do, in the position of leadership and authority. But when Jesus answers their questions and reveals his wisdom, it ends with they're amazed at his answer and they become silent. And they no longer dared to ask him anything. 
Jesus, in the way he shows his wisdom, proves it's not you that has the authority to lead. It's not you that has the authority to show God's people the way of wisdom. See, they ask these questions in the presence of many people, trying to basically have a contest. Who should we follow? And Jesus, time and time again throughout the book of Luke, and here it finally silences them. This is only a a couple chapters before his death. Shows, I'm the one that you should trust to lead you. I'm the one that you should trust to take you along the path of wisdom. He proves his wisdom. He displays his wisdom with religious questions, with political questions, with financial questions, with relational questions, with moral questions, over and over on every subject, in everything, Jesus shows, I've got the wisdom. I have that mastered. He is this shining light and beacon of wisdom, no matter what you bring to him, because he is God, the source of wisdom. And the more that we see his wisdom, the more that we read the Bible and get to know him and see how wise he is, even this week as I'm studying this, just going, man, what an answer to these questions. What a way to handle this. What a way to approach this. The more that we see his wisdom, what happens is we begin to trust him. And so when we've got questions, and listen, even when you and I don't understand, there's things I was praying about this week that I'm like, God, I don't understand why you're doing this. But it doesn't matter if I understand. What I know is he's wise. And so I can trust him. What I know is that, especially where I don't understand, how comforting it is to know, but you know what? I'm following the one with all wisdom. I'm being led by the one with all wisdom that's shown it over and over and over again on every topic. The more that we see his wisdom, the more that we trust him and then let him lead us. So how do we get wisdom? It's to ask him for it and to trust. To trust that he knows what he's doing and to trust that he wants good for you and I. He doesn't use all his wisdom for himself He uses all his wisdom to love us, bless us, lead us, care for us. We all want wisdom. And there's so much information. It's hard to discern. It's hard to sift through everything. But imagine if we could live with more wisdom. Don't you want more wisdom? I know I do. Imagine if we could live with more wisdom. Imagine if we could trust and have in our life the one with all wisdom, speaking to us, inviting us. Jesus shows he's the source. And to know him, to worship him, to come to him, is to find the path of wisdom. We're going to take communion in just a moment. If you didn't get a little cup, uh, you can grab it on the way in. Communion is something that Christians do to remember Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for us. Paul later in the Bible says this. He says that the the foolishness of God is smarter, is better than all the wisdom of men talking about the cross. Now, God's not foolish. Paul knows that. But he's saying even what looked like the dumbest thing ever, this person saying that they're the Messiah, this person saying that they're the Savior of the world, and then dying on a cross, looking like a complete failure, looking like a complete loss, looking like the mission completely failed. Paul says, even the foolishness of God 
is better than the wisdom of men. That all the wisdom that we have, all the wisdom that the best gurus in the world have, it's nothing compared to even what look like to humans foolishness. See, on the cross, it looked foolish that someone would die for their enemies. It looked foolish that someone that was supposed to save everyone would instead be treated as a criminal. It looked foolish that someone would be treated as a sinner and be mocked and scorned and abused. It looked foolish. But God says, this is my wisdom. My wisdom is actually to die for you instead of you dying. My wisdom is actually to have my body broken and my blood shed and to be crushed so you could have life. My wisdom is actually to take sin upon myself so that you can have forgiveness. My wisdom is to look foolish so that you can actually have the pathway to wisdom in me. This is what we remember when we take communion. His invitation to salvation, his invitation to wisdom. And so as you take communion, I just want to encourage you to confess sins, confess ways that, that we have lived foolishly, that we have chosen our own path or that we have intentionally or unintentionally rejected his wisdom. And to thank him that he wants to give you wisdom. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for your goodness and your grace. I thank you that you desire to give us life, that you desire to give us wisdom, that you want good for us. I thank you that we can trust you, that even when we don't understand, you have shown that you are a God that can be trusted. You have shown that you are the God of all wisdom. So God, build our collective and individual trust in you and help us to listen to your voice, humbly coming to you, so we can enjoy the life of wisdom you desire for us, knowing you and knowing your ways. Amen.